welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm back from Mobile Command Unit, and I got a few things for you. First, the Malignant Audiobook is out. It's what you've been asking for. It's on Audible, it's on iTunes, it's on Amazon. It's read by me for a long period of time and edited by Kiana Klossner, who produces this podcast. You won't want to miss it. Next, I have a COVID journal club, and this is on the profound randomized control trial of Olaparib versus Enza or Abby, investigator's choice that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine. You won't want to miss this discussion. This takes journal club to the next level. And then I'm joined via Skype with Dr. Adam Sifu, and we're going to be talking about literature and medicine and COVID and everything in between. You won't want to miss this, so stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First up, Malignant, the audiobook. You know, I'd been looking around at many other books, and I noticed something interesting, that when other people do audiobooks, they do the smart thing, which is get somebody else to narrate it. They don't try to do it all themselves. But due to a misguided calculation on my part, I purchased the audio rights back to my own book, which I had sold, going into the red, and I produced Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer. I read the whole thing myself, and I look around, and I don't see there are many books where the author reads it all themselves. And now, I know why. Because it isn't easy, and it isn't fun. But aided by throat lozenges, I completed the reading, and it's been expertly edited by Kiana Klossner, and available to you on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And if you want to listen for free, we're going to include a link to the folks we email about this podcast. So, enjoy Malignant, with a runtime of nearly eight hours. You won't want to miss this. Next up, the randomized control trial called Profound. This appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine on April 28, 2020. Olaparib for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer by Johan de Bono and colleagues. Well, well, well. AstraZeneca, you've done it yet again. You've taken a PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, and you have swung for the fences. Well, let's take a close look at what you've done. So, I read through this study, and I think I just identified 15 things that are worth talking about. But listen, this is a journal club. And unlike other journal clubs, it's actually recorded. So you know what you can do? If you haven't read the paper, I say, pause this recording. Stop this recording. Come back to this recording. Go on and read the paper. Read Olaparib for Metastatic Castor-Resistant Prostate Cancer in the New England Journal of Medicine. 
write down the things that you think are problematic, and then come back and listen to this podcast, and let's see how many we agree on and how many we might disagree on. So these are the things that I found problematic as I read this paper. It's called profound, but I would like to call it profoundly bad. And the reason it's profoundly bad as a general question is that it's similar to another AstraZeneca paper, which is Polotrial, which is olaparib and pancreas cancer with germline BRCA mutant pancreas cancer. The reason it's profoundly bad is that when you read the paper, you are very convinced that the authors of the paper, the people who designed the study, they wanted a win. They wanted to show a PFS benefit in both these studies. But what you have no confidence of is that they wanted a win, i.e. they wanted to actually ask the real question, which is, if you have olaparib in your toolbox and if you use it appropriately, can you lengthen the quantity or quality of life for people with these conditions? Can you make them live longer or live better with Olaparib than without Olaparib? That's the key question. But as we will see, this paper shirks the key question. It asks a different question. Under a very contrived set of conditions, can you use Olaparib to improve progression-free survival? And the answer to that is, yeah. But do you actually need it? Does it actually help in your clinic? And the answer to that is, well, who knows? And who cares? Because that's not what the companies care about. And the reason they don't care about that is they have an incentive, of course, to get the drug to market. But it's the job of the regulators, the FDA, to care about that. And they have abdicated that responsibility because, I think, it's broadly unpopular to say no to cancer drugs. They're facing a juggernaut of professional pressure from the companies, from thought leaders. Um, and they're not facing sort of a countervailing pressure from people who want better evidence. There are just not many of us out there. That's one. And two, folks who work at the FDA when they do choose to work elsewhere, which they not infrequently do, they overwhelmingly work for consulting for or employment by the biopharmaceutical firms that they previously regulated. And therefore, you have every incentive to play nice. And I think that's what we see over and over again. So let me take you through my 15 points of Olaparib in prostate cancer. Number one, and I'm just going to keep doing this, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. One, we thank blah, blah, blah of blah, blah, blah business for medical writing assistance. The manuscript was written with medical writing assistance funded by AstraZeneca and Merck with critical review and input by the authors. Well, 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 thank you, medical writers. You know, I recently went on a podcast with an economist who said that the idea of medical writers blew his mind because in economics, if you don't write your own paper, what are you doing? Writing is thinking. In philosophy, if you don't write your own paper, you might get uh, expelled. You might get punished. In English, same thing. In every other scholarly discipline, when you write a manuscript that represents your work, it's you who has written it. Even for folks who do biomedical research who work in the lab, they write their own papers. But somehow, for clinical trials, we can't bother the delicate trialists who are putting their name in the first and last author position for writing the paper. Sometimes we can't even bother them to enroll the most patients. And sometimes we can't bother them to give the most input into the design and conduct of the clinical trial. Of course, we can't bother them to do the data analysis, and we can't bother them to write the paper itself. So what do we have them do? Well, they lend their name to the paper, and with their name comes their reputation. And the paper, in turn, bolsters their reputation for the next time they lend their name to the paper. And are they actually doing anything? Who knows? Sometimes, yes, they do a lot, but sometimes... I've heard many people complain to me over the years that they have done very little, very little at all. In this case, who knows? 
But we have to thank our medical writer. You know, I think medical writers are bad. They're problematic. They massage over negative things and they heighten uh, falsely positive things. And I'll give you a quote in this paper towards the end that is so egregious. Only a careful, curated medical writer could think of it. But I think we have to step back and just say that, you know, it is unacceptable to put your name on a paper and not have it drafted it or written it, particularly if you are the first or last author. Um, I think that's abominable. Um, you have to write your own papers. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That is just a principle that exists uh, throughout all of education. If a student submitted a paper to my class and they had had somebody draft it for them, uh, they would likely face major um, repercussions from the university. And yet, that is permitted in clinical trials, and I see no good that comes from this arrangement. But I know why it really exists. Two, profound. Profound trial is a prospective biomarker-selected phase 3 trial involving men with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer who had disease progression while receiving a new hormonal agent, enzalutamide or abiraterone. Patients with a qualifying alteration in pre-specified genes with a direct or indirect role in homologous recombination repair were randomly assigned to receive the PARP inhibitor, olaparib, or the physician's choice of either enzalutamide or abiraterone control group. Well, 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 interesting. So it's a randomized trial for people who've progressed on Enza or Abby, or as we're going to learn both, and you can get either the physician's choice of anything you want, as long as that is Enza or Abby, one of the two drugs that you may have just immediately progressed on, versus the novel drug Olaparib. What else do you need to know about the study? Patients with at least one alteration in BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM, or in cohort A. But then there's another handful of a dozen or so genes that are included in a cohort B. Patients are 2 to 1 randomized to the standard dose of Olaparib tablets, 300 milligrams twice daily, or the pre-specified physician's choice of Enza 160 once daily or Abiraterone 1000 once daily with Pred 5 twice daily, the control group. It's the physician's choice, whatever you want. Well, as long as that choice is Enza or Abby. And we just got to make sure that the people who've entered this study have progressed on Enza or Abby. Of course, this trial is open-label, which is a bad design, of course, when your primary endpoint is something that requires uh, adjudication, uh, such as uh, investigator independent review, uh, radiographic progression-free survival, which is the primary endpoint of this study. Um, randomization was stratified according to previous taxane use. Oh, so they allow people who have previously received taxanes, but they also don't mandate it. You don't have to have received a taxane. Now, you know, I think about taxane's interesting. Taxane is an interesting drug. If I had a patient who progressed on Enza or Abby, I might want to give them an investigator choice of a taxane rather than Enza or Abby. Uh, but that, of course, would be banned in this clinical trial. They have to have measurable disease. Um, oh, here's another little interesting quirk of the trial. Patients who are assigned to the control group were eligible to cross over to receive Olaparib after independent review confirmed imaging-based progression. Oh, that's interesting. So, this trial has built-in crossover. Well, is it the kind of trial that should have built-in crossover? We'll come back to that. And if you want to learn more about that, you should read a paper by Allison Haslam and me in Annals of Oncology, called When is Crossover Necessary and When is it Unnecessary for Randomized Control Trials or something like that. And the other thing you could read is, I believe, chapters 11, 12 of Malignant, where we go into crossover and we talk about 
that the two types of errors with crossover. So I think that's a good sort of clinical trials oncology pearl that we can learn about. Finally, PFS is the primary endpoint. It's just easy and clear to say that progression-free survival is not an appropriate prostate cancer primary endpoint. Uh, I'm sorry, it's not. Radiographic PFS has historically not been the bar by which prostate cancer drugs are developed. They're developed with the goal of improving overall survival. And when you talk about overall survival in the order of 15, 18, 17 months, as we'll talk about in this study, you don't need radiographic PFS. And that's not really the question. You want to know, if you have a lap rib in your toolbox, can you get your patients in your clinic to live longer or live better than if you don't have a lap rib in your toolbox? That's the bottom regulatory question. Should you add this to the toolbox? Can I use it in a way that gets my patients in America to live longer, live better? We will see that they shirk that question. Number three, 4,047 patients had tumor tissue available for testing, a qualifying alteration of one of 15 pre-specified genes with HDR implications was detected in 778 patients. So that's about 19%. Of course, only about half of those patients could enroll on the study. Um, that's one point. This next point is that how many of those patients would be in cohort B? And I think the answer to that would be something like 12%. So, you know, if you took a big swath of your clinic and you asked, how many people in my clinic are really eligible for this, like cohort A eligible, BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM? Maybe the answer is actually slightly lower because in your actual clinic, you're probably not going to get that kind of referral trial bias. I think there's something going on different here kind of bias. It probably might be around 10%. But so let's just say this is something that, you know, at best might be applicable to one in 10 castrate resistant prostate cancer patients, you know? I point that out just to say that it's very different than ENZA or Abby or Taxanes, which is something that, you know, benefits everybody with prostate cancer or has no restriction on the label. Um, this is something that maybe at best one in 10 of your patients will be eligible for. But will they really need it? We'll come back to that question. Number four, um, patients on this study had gotten the control arm drugs. They had gotten Enza or Abby before. And the paper does a really fine job in the grand tradition of obfuscation to not let you know if you have a patient who got Enza before, are you giving them Enza again or are you giving them Abby? If they got Abby before, are you giving them Enza or are you giving them more Abby? If they got Enza and Abby, which are you giving? How could they have gotten Enza and Abby? Well, it turns out if you look at table one, previous new hormonal agents, it turns out about 40, 45% of people had gotten Enza. 35 to 40% of people had gotten Abby, and 20% of people had gotten enzalutamide and abiraterone. They'd gotten both of these drugs before. The physician's choice of either Enza or Abby was selected as the comparator because switching between these agents does occur in practice, despite the lack of randomized evidence to support this approach. That's how the medical writer writes it in the paper. I want to say, shut up. You need to stop talking because, one, nobody on this planet would give a patient who's gotten Enza and Abby, more Enza or Abby, when you have in your toolbox that you've never even used taxanes, such as docetaxel, cabazitaxel, you've never even used carboplatin, you've never used paclitaxel, you have all these drugs, you know, let's put a question mark on paclitaxel, but certainly for these HDR patients, carbo is something people are thinking about too, you got docetaxel, you got cabazitaxel, you got mitoxantrone, you got platinum, you haven't used any of those, and you want to give them more Enza or Abby when they've progressed on both, get out of here. No one's going to do that. No one is going to do that. That is just totally inappropriate medical care. 
inappropriate medical care, beneath the standard of care, if you were in clinic and you had a fellow say, you know, this patient really doesn't want to take chemotherapy and say, okay, you know, I understand that. So let's try Enza. Oh, well, we've already progressed on Enza. Okay, well, I guess, you know, if you had Enza before, going to Abby has a really low response rate, you know, maybe single digit, but I guess, you know, if they really don't want chemotherapy and you really explain to them that it's not as bad as you might think, um, you could try that. Oh, well, they've also had the patient that tell us they also had Abby too. I say, wait a second, get out of here. You, you got a patient who's had Enza and Abby and they really don't want chemotherapy. Um, well, you know, I think the honest thing is you got to explain to them that that's likely the absolute best thing they can do. And uh, probably the only thing we know that will improve their overall survival. And you got to go in there and have a real honest conversation because giving that again is going to be a fool's errand. And I think, in fact, they're going to go in and come back and say, okay, I explained it. And uh, now the patient understands that you can't give a drug that's just, you can't give these drugs over and over again. They're not going to generate response and they're unlikely to work. Then there's, of course, the interesting question of what's the best order. And of course, we have some randomized phase two data that says if you get Abby and then you get Enza, you know, you get a 30% response rate. If you get Enza and then you get Abby, well, you may have flogged those pathways as much as you can and you get a very poor response rate, maybe five, six, seven percent at best. So that's what you need to know. Control arm, deeply inappropriate. Um, I would say almost delinquently inappropriate control arm, just bad medicine control arm. And then the other thing I didn't say was that um, uh, uh, no one is saying um, that um, all these patients have said, I don't want chemo under any circumstance. In fact, probably many of them would be quite open to chemotherapy. And if you had a a decent conversation with the patient, um, there's no reason to think that they aren't. That's just something that I tossed in there for worst case scenario example. What about their pre-receipt of taxanes, 0.5? They had not all gotten taxanes. And in fact, only... About two-thirds had gotten any prior taxane. And if you've gotten a prior taxane, you know, 45% of the time, 40% of the time, you got docetaxel. And about 20% of the time, you got docetaxel and cabazitaxel. Almost nobody got paclitaxel, um, which many of us give in combination with carbo for these HDR patients. Um, And uh, very few people got cabazitaxel alone, as you'd expect. But let's just point out, one-third of these patients had not gotten taxanes. And if you had one of those patients who got Enza and Abby, um, that's the clear go-to, a taxane. There's just no ifs, ands, or buts about that. Point six. The median imaging-based progression-free survival was significantly longer in the Olaparib group than the control group. 7.4 versus 3.6 months. Hazard ratio for progression or death. The confirmed objective response among patients who could be evaluated was 33% in the Olaparib group and 2% in the control group. That's low. 2% response rate is really low, really, really low. We're going to come back to that, what you might have expected. But I think this speaks to the fact that these are people for whom the two pathways of AR receptor and 17-alpha hydroxylase have been flogged. They've been flogged before. They've gotten Abby. They've progressed through it. They've gotten Enza. They've progressed through it. And now you're giving them more Abby. Are you out of your mind? No wonder you only get a 2% response rate. That's almost like giving them a total placebo. I mean, it might as well have just given them sugar pill and neglected to care for them further because that's really what you're doing there. That's a very lousy control arm. Classic, classic Olaparib trials. Classic bad control arm. This polo's the same way. Uh, AZ, what you doing? Uh, 
Median overall survival was 18.5 months with a lap rib and 15.1 months with a control arm. Hazard ratio for death, 0.6. P-value, 0.02. We got it. We got the OS. Yes. But we're going to come back to that. How do you interpret that OS when the control arm is lousy and when there's another perversity in the trial? Okay. Point number seven. Cohort A and cohort B. Oh, well, well, well. This trial is a slippery one, is it not? Isn't it not slippery? Here's how they write it. In men with castrate-resistant prostate cancer who had a BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM mutation, this is the cohort A, and who had disease progression while receiving a new hormonal agent, Olaparib led to a significantly longer PFS benefit than physician choice of enzalutamide or abiraterone. A benefit was also seen in the overall trial population, cohorts A and B, with an alteration in any of the 15 pre-specified genes with a direct or indirect role in HDR repair. So, it was seen in both cohort A and in cohorts A and B. See, it's a win for both A and A and B. But you might ask, what about just in B? Because only a real snake would write it in this way and not tell me what happened to B. I want to know what happens to B by itself. If cohort A did really well, and I lump a few people in with cohort A, and then the overall group does well, is it doing well just because the cohort A is lifting it up and cohort B is dropping it down? Well, it turns out that when you combine cohorts A and B, something interesting happens. The median PFS goes from 7.4 in cohort A to 5.8 months in cohort A and B. The control arm, as would be expected, stays roughly the same, 3.6, 3.4 month PFS. So here's what we know. Out of 162 patients in cohort A on Olaparib, the median PFS was 7.4 months. Of 256 patients in cohort A and B, the median PFS was 5.8 months. Okay, so what about the 94 patients who were in cohort B alone? Well, you could do a little math. You could say, just assuming some very simple assumptions, that 162 people all had the median PFS of 7.4 months, that's about 1,200 months of PFS, and all 256 people had about 6 months of PFS, 5.8 months, that's about 1,484 months of PFS, what would the 94 people who had in cohort B had to have as a median PFS to get that math to work out, to go from 7.4 to 5.8? And the answer is, they would have had to have a median PFS of 3.04 months, which is a little bit lower than the 3.6 and 3.4 months of the control arm. So why do I say provocatively that only a snake would write it this way? Because it's a, just a snake thing to do. Come on, people, we know that. This is just terrible. I want to know what cohort B is doing. And it looks like that cohort B might be doing even worse than the worst control arm you could dream up for this scenario. It looks like it's, their PFS might be as low as three months. I don't know for sure because you know I don't have all the data to run these numbers. These are just back of the envelope numbers. But I suspect that that's probably the case. It's probably not far from the truth, which is there is no benefit in cohort B. There just can't be a mathematical benefit in cohort B and go from 7.4 to 5.8 months. 162 people, you add in 94 people to get to 256 people to get that 7.4 down to 5.8. You got to really drag them down in that 94 people. And you got to drag them down so far that it's probably ineffective in cohort B. So when you say a benefit was also observed in the overall trial population, only if you lump them together. And that is just really despicable. Come on. Come on. We see this over and over again. We know this game. Tell me what it is in A. Tell me what it is in B. Don't tell me what it is in A and A and B just because you want an overall positive. You know you have more people in A anyway. It's going to be dragging it up. Come on. AZ, get out of here. Eight. Let's look at overall survival of cohort B and A and B and A. Now it's getting interesting. 
Median overall survival in cohort A, 18.5 months with 162 people. Median overall survival in cohort A and B, 17.5 months with 256 people. So we're dragging it down. The median overall survival in cohort B must be something like 15.7 months. To take an 18.5 month and drag it down to 17.5 months uh, in the cohort A and B, the B alone must be about 15.7 months. And we need to remember that the control arms have about a 14.3 months median OS, and it's 15.7 in cohort B. Now that's interesting. So now we got to really use our noggins. I, I think, I suspect that cohort B, in terms of median OS, might be doing better than the control arm, despite the fact that Olaparib doesn't do much or anything in this cohort, as evidenced by probably what is largely overlapping PFS curves, which I showed you with the three months and 3.4 months. How is that possible? And I think that speaks to the fact that there is an imbalance both on protocol and post-protocol. There's an imbalance after the protocol was completed. And that imbalance actually pen further penalizes the control arm and doesn't penalize the olaparib arm. So even when you give it in cohort B where olaparib is probably, probably, my guess is, not a very useful drug at all, there's still a survival benefit in B versus control arm because the post-protocol therapy is better in B than it is in the control arm. So let's talk about that in a minute. Point nine, 82% of patients on this clinical study on the control arm crossed over to olaparib. So let's talk this out. What did you get treated with if you were on the treatment arm of the study? Well, you got Enza and Abby, and then you progressed on Enza and Abby or Enza or Abby, one or the other, and then you got olaparib. And a third of you had not gotten a taxane. And it doesn't even tell me how many people had gotten a platinum. Let's say you progress again on a lap rib at your seven months-ish. You're probably five months in the whole cohort and three months if you were in the cohort B. God, awful. Um, so you progress again. After you get a lap rib, you get probably a taxane or a platinum. Um, you get uh, maybe cabazitaxel. Maybe instead of docetaxel-cabazitaxel, maybe you get some mitoxantrone. You know, you get standard of care, good, probably cytotoxic therapy. Now let's say you're on the control arm. You get Enza or Abby or Enza and Abby. Then you get some more Enza or Abby, just wasting your time with a 4% response rate um, or 2% response rate, whatever it was. And then you progress again. Well, then you get Olaparib. And then you progress again. And then you finally get that Taxane or Platinum, that drug that, you know, has a proven, at least in the case of Docetaxel, proven life-prolonging benefit. In other words, there's a delay, my guess, in both the percentage of people who ultimately get taxane from control to treatment and the time at which they get the taxane is probably better in the olaparib arm than the control arm. And that's why I think cohort B has a better OS despite the fact that there is probably not a lick of PFS benefit in cohort B is that in cohort B, when you progress, at least you're getting some good cytotoxic drugs. In cohort A, when you progress, you have to be saddled with olaparib. And some of your people are going to have, and some of the people are going to be cohort B people who are getting olaparib in crossover where it's a totally useless drug, likely. That's really bad. Point 10. 
However, exploratory analyses suggest that patients with BRCA1 or BRCA2 alterations derive the most benefit. Yeah, I could have told you that. It is important that Olaparib showed activity in patients with alterations in other pre-specified genes with a direct or indirect role in HDR repair. Detailed analysis are ongoing. Oh, thanks, medical writer. You know... This is a useless sentiment. You know what the median PFS is in cohort B. You could just report that like any honest broker of information. But you're choosing to obfuscate and to make this claim. The detailed analyses are ongoing. I don't need a detailed analysis. I just need to know the median PFS in cohort B. Just show me Kaplan-Meier in cohort B only against control arm. Oh, but you won't do that. Wonder why. Point 11. The PSA response for Enza or Abby in this study, in the control arm, was about 8%, which is really abysmally low. In a prior phase two study that was published, I believe, in the Lancet Oncology a few years ago, if you got Abby and then Enza versus Enza then Abby, there was a difference in the PFS response rate. But if you got Abby and then Enza, it was about one in three, 30, 36% PSA response rate. If you got Enza then Abby, it was about 4%. So what does this mean? I guess what this means is my guess is that the majority of people in this study were not Abby, progressed on Abby, and then getting investigator choice Enza. There are probably people who progressed on both, who are getting one or the other, which we expect a very low PSA response, or the people who got Enza and then got Abby, because that's the only way to drag that PSA response rate down to 8%. These aren't Abby, then getting Enza. And in clinical practice, honestly, if you give Abby, then you can give Enza. If you give Enza and then you want to give Abby, you really have to ask yourself what you're doing. We know it has a really low PSA response rate. Um, and if you've given both, you absolutely don't want to be giving these drugs again, especially when you have a taxane still on the table. So this trial also doesn't tell me who got Enza, who got Abby, and if you got Enza, what did you get next? And if you got Abby, what did you get next? And if you got both, what did you get next? And what's the response rate in all those different groups? They have all this information. This information would be incredibly useful to make sense of this paper. Interestingly, the information is not reported at all. 12. You know, people always ask like, oh, well, you know, they were in a tough situation. These are heavily pre-treated patients. You know, um, it's not unreasonable to give this control arm, um, you know, under the right circumstances. Um, what, you know, what else could they have done? Well, you know, this is what I want to answer. Trials you could have done instead. You could have done a lot of other trials instead. Okay. You got to focus on the key question. The key question is, do people live longer or live better with Olaparib in your toolbox than without Olaparib in your toolbox? You've missed so far from that key question. Um, one, you don't need crossover in this clinical study. You've never established the fundamental efficacy of Olaparib. I'm going to come to that in the next point, so I won't beat on about that. But here are the trials you could have done. Clean trials. Um, you could have done a randomized trial of Olaparib versus Enza or Abiraterone in castrate-resistant prostate cancer patients who have not had either. Um, and, and in both arms, you could do Olaparib versus Enza or Olaparib versus Abby. Um, and then let investigators do whatever they want. So Olaparib versus Abby. And then if you progress on Abby, you know, some people get Enza, some people get Ataxane. If you progress on Olaparib, then you can get Abby and then you get Enza and you get Ataxane. You know, Olaparib versus Abiraterone. Um, I suspect they didn't do that trial because they know they would get obliterated. Abiraterone is going to crush, crush, dominate Olaparib. Enza is going to dominate Olaparib, I suspect, in this trial. Olaparib versus Enza or Abby, cancer-resistant prostate cancer, and then investigators doing whatever they want thereafter, like best standard of care. Uh, Olaparib's going down hard. Okay, the other trial you could have done. You could have done, in people who've had Enza or Abby or, God forbid, both, you could have done Olaparib versus Ataxane. That's a nice, clean study. Olaparib versus Ataxane. If you progress on Olaparib, you can get Ataxane. You can get all the Taxanes. If you progress on Ataxane, you can get a Platinum. 
Um, you know, you could do that clean study, Olaparib versus Ataxane in people who've gotten Enza or Abby or both. Um, I suspect the reason they didn't do that study is they know that they're going to get obliterated. Their PFS is going to be lower, I suspect. They're going to get destroyed by docetaxel. Old, dumb docetaxel is going to destroy new, targeted, genome HDR, synthetic lethality Olaparib. It's going to get destroyed. The third trial they could have done was Olaparib versus investigator choice. But here, you could have made it a real choice which is whatever the investigator wants to give. And you could have run your trial in the best U.S. centers where the author list draws from, where investigator choice will include, I suspect, a lot of carbo. Carboplatin will be included. Maybe carbopaclitax will be included. And we have phase two data that supports that, old data. Um, and we also have, you know, uh, some retrospective data that supports that. But, you know, true investigator choice, Let free them. Let them be liberated to give what they want. And in this trial, Olap reverse investigator choice, you could go in in the last line. You could go in for people who've had Enza and or Abby and Docetaxel. You could do it in people who've had all three. You could do it in people in Olap versus investigator choice and allow them to toss in some mitoxantrone if they think that's appropriate in the right patient. Maybe they're allowed to use cabazitaxel. And any of these three trials I've decided, which go from the earliest you could go up in, Olap versus Enza Abby, followed by taxane, then the next step would be Olap versus taxane in those who've had Enza or Abby. And then you could do Olap versus investigator choice in those who've had Enza, Abby, and docetaxel. You know, those are three spots in the sort of natural history of natural history and treatment of prostate cancer, which go from large market share to small market share. In all of these settings, what you want to do is Olaparib versus a free investigator choice. And then you have to make sure post-protocol therapy is up to par in, in both arms. Um, and then the question is, does it improve OS in any of these settings? And I suspect if you did it my way, you will be addressing the key question, which is do people live longer or better with Olaparib in your toolbox than without it? In other words, should the FDA add this to your toolbox? And I suspect, if I'm a betting man, I would bet that all of these trials would be negative and you don't need Olaparib in your toolbox. I bet if you gave me 1,000 people and you had 1,000 patients with prostate cancer with HDR, you can even pick, let's just say cohort A, let's give you the best chance. Because cohort B, I know I'm going to do better than you. But cohort A, you have cohort A patients, you got 1,000 patients, you get Olaparib. Give it whenever you want. You can give it just like they gave it in this trial. Profound profoundly bad. Um, and you let me do what I want, but I'm not allowed to use Olaparib. I can use any drug but Olaparib. I'm going to give my patients, Abby, when they progress, I'm going to give them some Enza. In those who are more open-minded to early chemotherapy, I'm going to give them docetaxel. Then I'm going to give them Kabazi. I'm going to come in with some mitoxantral. Maybe I'll come in with some platinum therapy. I bet with my careful attention to my patients and just using these old drugs, I bet I will have a better OS than you. I don't even think you'll tie. I think I'll beat you. I think I will beat you. Because I think Olaparib is a weak drug. And what you have in this trial is you have a study where you randomize patients to a weak drug, then good drugs, versus essentially no acceptable therapy. So no drug or a horrible, horrible drug that just adds side effects like prednisone without any potential for benefit, which is what the control arm is. And then when you progress a weak drug and then a good drug. So there's a imbalance in the time to a good drug, which I consider the chemotherapy options to be decent drugs. And so I guess I would say, point 13, crossover perverts overall survival. You are really randomizing patients to a lap rib versus a harmful, ineffective intervention. 
harmful because in, in some one, at least in one case, you're giving them steroids as well. When you progress on Olaparib, you get taxanes or platinum. When you progress on ineffective therapy, you get a weak therapy, Olaparib. And only when you progress on that second weak therapy do you get taxanes or platinum. And so crossover has punished the control arm. And this is really reminiscent of cipolucil T. In the randomized control trial of cipolucil T, you got cipolucil T or you got a placebo vaccine. When you progressed on cipolucil T, you got docetaxel. Median time to taxanes was, I forget. It's in the book, Malignant. Um, and, 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 and a big fraction of people got, the majority of people got taxanes. When you progress on the placebo arm of cipolucil T, you got the frozen cipolucil T. And only later did you get a taxane and a lower fraction got taxanes and a delay. And so the AHRQ wrote a paper saying, we don't know that cipolucil T has this OS benefit because cipolucil T improves survival. It's possible that the control arm was harmed because when the control arm progressed, they were forced to take cipolucil T before they could get a taxane, which is a life prolonging drug. I think the crossover chapter of malignant will make this be crystal clear. There are two situations in oncology, situations where you already know a drug has a survival benefit in a ladder line of therapy, and you're moving it up in therapy, in which case you always want to give the drug to the control arm on the back end, in which case you want crossover. When you don't get it, it's bad, and we have examples of that. And you have situations where you don't know the fundamental efficacy of a therapy, as in this case. And in these situations, you don't want crossover because crossover can muddy the OS benefit. And the authors here seem to believe that the only potential impact of crossover was lessening an OS benefit that would be even bigger. No, 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 no. That's a rookie mistake. The other potential impact is you have created an OS benefit that would not exist at all. And you don't recognize that. And that's an absolute hard fact. You can put money on that that's a potential impact of crossover. When trialists build in crossover inappropriately, they really have set themselves up to win no matter what. If there is no OS benefit, they'll say, well, you know, it's because of the crossover. If there is an OS benefit, they'll say it's the drug, it would have been even bigger had it not been for crossover. But here, there's a potential that the OS benefit would have vanished without crossover because the control arm patients would have gotten taxanes and platinum in due course, as they were meant to do. 14. The key question I will come back to because I think this is the most important point. Do people live longer or better with Olaparib in your toolbox than without it? This trial does not answer that question at all because in the control arm, I'm not allowed to use my full toolbox. I'm not allowed to use all of these drugs I would want to use. I'm forced to use a tool in my toolbox that has already failed. It's already progressed on both Enza and Abby, 20% of people, and I got to give them more Enza or Abby. That is ridiculous. That just destroys the PFS benefit. And then the next thing is, then they progress. I got to give him a medium or weak drug, Olaparib. I'm not allowed to go to my toolbox, or I am allowed to go to it, but you know, I've drunk the Kool-Aid and I believe the hype of Olaparib and I want to give him Olaparib. It's the only chance for Olaparib. But no matter what, I do give them that instead. And that will pervert the OS. That will make the OS unrecognizable and, uh, and, and frankly, not useful. 15. You know, it strikes me that it's so interesting that, like, I don't know, really respected KOLs, like, just always sign up for these trials. They're always, like, happy to put their name on, you know, Polo. What a trial, you know? You're giving people who are responding to Fulfirinox therapy, uh, then they have to stop 
and get randomized to a Laparib or placebo. And then the placebos got like a very high response rate, 9% response rate, which is way higher than placebo-controlled trials. How do they have such a high response rate? Well, the only explanation that comes to my mind is they're still responding to platinum that they haven't gotten from weeks ago. And my God, if you'd given these people more platinum, or if you give them 5-FU as a control arm single agent, like we always do in that situation, uh, you know, they'd probably be doing even better. And yet you get trialists who are happy, eager to sign up for these trials to say, we're going to recruit at our center when they're doing standard of care control arms that they just would never do outside the trial. Um, and we've cataloged lists of this. It's 17% of randomized control trials in the paper by Talal Halal, myself in JAM Oncology. Um, and we have another paper that's going to come soon uh, that's going to really gosh, going to hit this issue so hard. Um, but, you know, why do people sign up for that? And I just don't understand. And in this case, what I found was really ironic was, you know, I mentioned errors of crossover. One error of crossover was in the latitude study, patients assigned to the control arm, um, they did not get abiraterone as they otherwise would have in clinical practice. It was really a trial of early abiraterone versus a control arm where you really didn't have much of a shot at getting abiraterone. And Johan de Bono and colleagues on the Latitude study, look at the letters to the editor. They've written a letter saying that the control arm here, the subsequent therapy, was beneath the standard that we would have offered our patients. And ergo, conclusions about OS are null and void. We really don't know what to make of it. So Dr. de Bono is able to recognize that problem uh, in someone else's study, uh, but in his study, he's not able to see that this is a huge problem, that the same thing he's faulting these other study for is happy to accept in his own study. And I think that's the, that's the great irony of oncology trials. And that's also why, why am I a health policy sort of meta-researcher, one of the most common voices for the appropriate criticism of randomized controlled trials and not trialists themselves. And you wonder, obviously, trialists won't criticize their own trial. They put their name on it. But why don't trialists criticize each other's trials? And I think the real risk you run when you start criticizing other people's trials is that very soon in the near future, someone will find that you yourself have put your name on a trial that makes the exact error you were so critical of. And so you will look like the worst thing there is in the world, a hypocrite. And that's really why we have this culture of silence in oncology, where we just get really lousy, lousy studies of which profound is profoundly lousy, um, one of them. And, and we don't have a culture where people say the obvious, which is, my God, man, if the patient progresses on Enzyme Abbey and one out of three hasn't gotten a taxane and these are HDR patients and no one's gotten a platinum, you got to allow people to give them some real drugs, not give them more Enzyme Abbey. And of course, the fact that there's no PSA response, nearly no PSA response, it's just testament to the fact you're giving them a bad control arm. So those are my thoughts with Olaparib. I think the key issues are, um, you know, the pretreatment tells you the control arm is lousy. There was an opening to give taxanes or platinums as we do with HDR patients. And I didn't go through, I, I could pull you some abstracts on the response rate of platinums. They're not bad. Um, probably better than Olaparib in this setting. Uh, platinum would probably have beaten Olaparib is my guess. I don't know for sure. Um, uh, so that's another pot thought. The next part is what happened to cohort B? You can do the math yourself. How do you get 7.4 to go to 5.8 from 162 to 256? What had to happen to the other 94 patients, their PFS had to be around three months, which is probably a little bit lower than the control arm. And yet the OS of cohort B is probably a little bit better than the control arm, despite the fact their PFS is probably a little bit lower. And the only way that makes sense to me is if 
the post-protocol therapy is actually worse for the control arm than it is for cohort B. I strongly suspect that that's the case. A huge fraction of people crossed over to Laparib. You don't need crossover. You don't want crossover in trials of fundamental efficacy. You do need crossover. You do want crossover when you move drugs up that are previously established in prior lines of therapy. That's a huge classic distinction that is well appreciated in in Malignant for many chapters. It teaches that as well as the paper by Haslam and myself in um, Annals of Oncology. I think those are the main points. And and, and then the, the last point I want to highlight is the trials you could have done instead. Olaparib versus Enza or Abby, Olaparib versus Taxi, and people who've had Enza or Abby or both, Olaparib versus Investigator Choice, let them be free, true Investigator Choice in folks who've had Enza and or Abby or Docetaxel. True Investigator Choice would include Platinums. Um, none of the, the trial we have now does not tell me Olaparib improves outcomes. If it's in your toolbox, Olaparib is super costly. It's toxic. Um, there are other drugs out there. Uh, that are probably more active. Platinum is probably more active. Let me give you the platinum stat. Uh, abstract ASCO, platinum-based chemotherapy and metastatic prostate cancer with alterations in DNA repair. We sought to evaluate the efficacy of platinum-based chemotherapy and DDR, mutant metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer. We looked for deleterious alterations in a panel, including BRCA2, BRCA1, ATM, okay, blah, 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 blah. Uh, PSA responses were more common in the DDR mutants, 53%. Uh, that's what happened with platinum. Platinum-based chemotherapy showed activity in metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer with DDR mutations uh, before and after PARP inhibitor treatment. Uh, 53% is really good. I think Olaparib would have gotten flattened by platinum, would have gotten flattened by taxane, would have gotten flattened by Enza, would have gotten flattened by Abby, and people who had not obviously had both Enza or Abby before. Come on. Uh, you had to look hard to think of this trial. To really think of this trial, I mean, you have to kind of sit there and stroke your beard and think diabolically on how you can get a group of people to get the most god-awful control arm in prostate cancer, which probably actually impairs their survival and is probably worse than they would have gotten if they were not on a study, and somehow get that to be accepted and justified and used and get it all the way to New England Journal paper without anyone commenting. And, you know, very likely this will get a drug approval and everyone is signing up that this is an acceptable thing to do, except we all know everyone who really as honest with themselves and know that they wouldn't do it this way and that this is trash. Um, and, you know, we've just grown accustomed to the fact that we don't get really great trials in oncology and it's either this or nothing. Um, and uh, it's not good enough. This is not a system that will last much longer. I mean, uh, more and more people are going to grow wise to the f games that are being played in these clinical trials, and I think they're not going to be so happy about it. All right, on that positive note, we'll shift gears and we'll move into our discussion with Dr. Adam Sifu, a far-ranging discussion on literature, medicine, and so much more. It's going to be the antidote to everything we've talked about this far. It's going to leave you in a good mood. I promise that. So stay tuned. I'm back in plenary session, end of day's bunker, joined via Skype with Dr. Adam Sifu. Dr. Sifu is professor of medicine at the University of Chicago. He'll need no introduction to this podcast. He is co-author of the great book, Symptom to Diagnosis, and the also great book, Ending Medical Reversal. Dr. Sifu, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Thank you very much, Renai. Thanks for having me back. So, we were going to talk about COVID-19. Oh, God. <laughs> your favorite topic. Your favorite topic. Um, yes. You know, I, I've noticed uh, over the course of the last few weeks, um, particularly, I think, at the end of February and early March, uh, but sort of maybe a second wave of it at the end of March, 
was that, you know, from my perusal of social media, Twitter, which I know you're you're active on, you know, it, it, I, I felt as if there were some physicians who were under a little bit of stress and maybe losing a little bit of their sanity, you know, that they were getting, a, they were perseverating on things that we could be doing. They were getting really, really angry about broader failures. And, and there's some justifiable anger there, but, you know, they were really letting it show. And, and they seemed to kind of uh, uh, be, be quite concerned and, and, and very anxious about what was going on. And then I, you know, I checked out your Twitter feed and, um, you know, you did a great job of if you were anxious, nobody would know about it because, you know, you restrained yourself. Uh, you didn't let it show. Yeah. So I guess I'm wondering, how, how did you sort of deal with it on the inside? And, uh, and why do you think uh, so many people were, were going so crazy? Wow, that's a great question. That's a hard one. <laughs> um, I totally agree with you. I, I mean, it's been sort of interesting watching Twitter and also just talking to right friends, yeah. family, patients, because yeah. like everybody's anxious, right? Like if you're not anxious about this stuff, you're just crazy. Right. Um, but it's so interesting how everybody shows it in a very different way. Um, and I have to admit, probably the uh, the outward appearance I was giving um, is a little bit how I was dealing with it and a little bit of what I look to to social media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I got, you know, relatively freaked out by it all I, at the beginning of this, I think like most people, um, as we sort of shut down my clinic and as we had to scramble to figure out, you know, what the hell are we going to do with the medical school? Um, but I feel like... You know, Twitter's not there for me to vent my personal angst. Um, and so I kind of, uh, you know, withdrew a little bit from social media for about a week while I got my head together, I think, mm-hmm. during all that. Um, and and once I kind of calmed down, realized, you know, what my role in the whole thing was, then it felt actually fun to re-engage because then I felt like I could get back into you know, the medicine of it and the questions that you and I always deal with, like what's the evidence behind how we treat this stuff? And also a little bit about, you know, wow, this is sort of, I hate to say it, you know, it's just another disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how can I look at this in a way that's as interesting and and kind of rewarding to take care of as every other disease? Mm-hmm. So that's that's your sort of philosophy, which is, you know, if you're feeling sort of concerned on the inside, you don't broadcast that out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't stop others. I mean, I think that there is this, um, you know, I could, I, it was sort of palpable, the anxiety. And I think one of the ways I saw it manifest was, um, you know, the increasingly fervent calls for adopting the the next step of our sort of escal- public health escalation. So, of course, first closing yeah. schools and then, uh, you know, shelter yeah. in place. And then a few weeks later, it was universal cloth masks. And you would see some people, yeah. you know, once that seed was planted in their head, which, you know, I can trace to, you know, the Atlantic article or the New York Times yeah. article, yeah. Uh, then they really went yeah. on a crusade that that was their thing. Um yeah. Uh, and, and, and you're somebody who, you know, you, you're broadly accepting of all these countermeasures. Uh, you're not, you're not, uh, a COVID contrarian as they call them. Um, uh, but you're also not a, a, a vocal, um, you know, uh, what's the word? You're you're not, you're not trying to beat people over the head on Twitter, which is of course such a random sample of America to get people to abide by these recommendations. Right. right. Yeah. 
Right, but I don't think it's a bad sample of America because you know we all run into this in our in our daily goings around, right? That that there are people who you quickly recognize. Boy, I can have a rational conversation with this person, yeah. and maybe they're actually looking to learn something from whatever expertise I have. And then there are those other people who are like, it doesn't matter what I say because nothing's going to work here, right? Yeah. Um, and and I guess it's one of the difficult things about social media is that there are certainly tons of people on there who are actually looking for good information, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and I hope I consider myself one of those that I actually, you know, just scroll through and I'm like, huh, you know, what can I learn from these people, right? And there are other people who who really just look like they're out to pick a fight, um, <laughs> and 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 it's interesting because. Those people often, even if you just put up something, and this has happened to me a bunch in this in this COVID area, era where I'm like, boy, you know, this is a really interesting article about transmissibility or about the, you know, about the the quality of 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 cloth masks as a prevention, without really even taking a stand about right, it. Right, right. And like people, you know, attack you about like, how can you, you know, this is irresponsible. I'm like. I didn't say anything. Yeah, um, I, I just tweeted a factual study about the uh, the properties of cloth right. masks, right? Well, you also right. got some heat for, um, I, I would say, sort of a bold tweet of yours where, um, you know, a student tweeted a picture of their bookshelf, and uh, there was one book that I believe was Ending Medical Reversal, but it was surrounded in uh, poor company, uh, one Twitter user alleged, uh, that it was surrounded by a bunch of very, very bad books. Um, and uh, they blamed you for that, for promoting those books. <laughs> I know, <laughs> books like I know, Mein Kampf. I know. <laughs> I know. I, I, that, was, that was hard. And, and I'm sure you go through this a whole lot more than I do since you have whatever, 20,000 more times followers than I do. Um, but where you have to sort of figure out, you know, what, what am I going to engage and what am I not going to engage? Yeah, yeah. And in that point was, and, you know, this was just an opportunity because it was so nice. It was an ex-student of mine who was visiting a friend and saw our book on that friend's bookshelf, yeah. took a picture of it and, yeah. you know, sent it to me. And I was like, that's just such a nice thing to do. And, you know, this person jumps in to say, boy, you are promoting um, a book on this shelf that I disagree with. And I was like, well, no, I'm actually shamelessly self-promoting my own book. <laughs> right, I'm I know, right. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and and also, I mean, boy, if we're at the point where we're going to judge people for things that they've read, you know, that's that's a sorry state of affairs, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, I think you and I both feel like you got to read widely and you're going to hate some of the stuff you're going to read. You're going to disagree with some of the stuff you read. But that doesn't mean you bring it out to your backyard and set it on fire right afterwards. Right. Um, and, and let's talk about the book in question. I made a joke that it was Mein Kampf, but it wasn't Mein Kampf. It was, I believe, a, a book by Stephen Pinker. Um, a book right. I, I haven't read, admittedly. Um, and, and to be honest, I don't know a lot about Stephen Pinker, but you know, I know he writes right. psychology books. Uh, but it was a book that I think would be on many people's bookshelves and was rather a bland offering. You wouldn't look twice if I saw it on someone's right. bookshelf. Um, right. right. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Pinker has, I think, you know, a bad name for having, um, made some comments with, which certainly people could see as sexist. Um, you know, was a, I think early defender of, of Larry Summers at Harvard, yeah, and um, and absolutely you can disagree with that stuff. Um, um, but to 
you know, paint somebody um, into a corner because they happen to own that book or have read it or any books of his. I I can't agree with. Yeah, I can't agree with. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't advertise this a lot, but, um, you know, they're they're books – you know, in my scope of interest on biopharma. And every once in a while, there's a book written by, you know, it's classic is sort of a venture capitalist or an investor. And and I know what it's going to say, which is that, you know, yeah, there's some bad behavior on pharma, but we need to keep the profits high for innovation. I mean, I kind of know the gist. Uh, But, you know, I kind of compulsively read that genre of books even. And then as I read it, I find a million things medically that are incorrect, uh, as I think a lot of doctors do. Um, But, you know, I read that genre of books and confront myself with it uh, just to kind of know what people on the other side of the spectrum are thinking, um, even if I don't agree with it. And I'm happy to keep those books on my bookshelf. Um, and, uh, and, and he, I, yeah, give them away sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's our book because if people sell our book used on, on, on Amazon, boy, it kills me. It kills me. You <laughs> um, know, don't undercut us. <laughs> no, but, but, um, um, but you know, that, you know, we've both spent our time at the university of Chicago, which is, which is famous for its, its openness to exchange of ideas and, and really defending the open, you know, the open, I sort of attitude towards debate. Um, I always say, one, you know, you got to learn to know your enemies, right? It's impossible to um, debate the influence of pharma unless you know the arguments that they're going to make. And you got to know those arguments well, um, because they're going to know their arguments very well. You got to be able to get through that. And then also, I think it takes, you know, shedding a little bit of our moral vanity and and recognizing that you know boy what's acceptable at one time is not acceptable at other times and i always think about you know speakers that you know would martin luther king have been have been invited to speak at a university in the south 50 years ago you know no it would have created havoc um but now we're appalled by that and you know maybe they're they're probably much better much better examples there, but um, um, and I'm not going to say that you know Steve Bannon coming to talk at your institution is going to be looked back on as Martin Luther King, God forbid. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, there's something you can take away from from anybody. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's well put. I mean, I look at it in a, in in the way of hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, even though we are arguably at least you know or at least we strive to be equitable diverse and and just um uh good liberal thinking um but i think a thousand years from now people will look back on us and see all the shortcomings based on sort of the way in which morality has evolved um the ways in which we could have done a better job we allowed people to be born in nations where they really had no equality of opportunity they had no shot you know that's continuing to this day um and so we'll see all the shortcomings and and i guess it's I mean, it's it's a balancing act. Obviously, there are people who can be judged poorly by the standard of their day. Um, but uh, if you judge everyone by the standard of some future day, many of us, 90% plus, we're all going to look poor. Uh, and that might be yeah. too hard of a benchmark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, that's, those are big issues. Big issues, which we'll, <laughs> which we'll steer clear of. We'll steer clear of. Let's get back to, let's get back to COVID. Um, um, okay, so here's another thought about COVID that I wanted to, to pick your brain yeah. on, which is that, you know, you can make the perfect the enemy of the good. And what do I mean by that? You know, you get people more or less to stay in their house. You get people to go sparingly to the grocery store. When they go to the grocery store, maybe they wear a cloth mask or a paper mask or, you know, some sort of facial covering. Um, you get them to wash their hands a little bit more, take their kids out of school. 
Um, you know, that's all reasonable. Uh, when people want to go for a run, um, when they want to go for a bike ride, and then there are people who want to say that when you want to do those activities, you also need to wear the cloth mask. I guess I would say that you're really pushing your luck uh, because one, uh, it's very difficult to exert yourself hard on a bicycle when you're being gagged with a cloth mask. Two, the risk of spread, you know, maybe it's uh, more than zero, but that's not the biggest fish to fry. You know, I sort of think of it like, yeah. um, like uh, you know, if you can get people who are, who are driving SUVs and get them into Toyota Corolla, it's a huge benefit for gas production. You go from a Corolla to a Prius or a Tesla, it's really a modest benefit. You know, it's diminishing returns. And I think right. when you keep picking on these diminishing return things, I saw something, an article yeah. today about how can you exercise vigorously with a mask on? Um, or how can you close parks and beaches? You know, there's one thing to close Central Park yeah. or, you know, a park where it's crowded. Yeah. But you talk about the Oregon yeah. coast, you close. There's nobody on the Oregon coast. You know, it's a wide open thousand. Yeah. You know. yeah. Okay, yeah. so you start pushing your luck. You're, you're going to get you're protecting seals. At yeah, point, right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and they may, who knows? Maybe they have COVID, too. I know I heard that big cats can get it. And there's a there's a pug that apparently contracted it. But um, yeah, so you're protecting wildlife. But, you know, so what do you think about this idea that like, I think one of the ways in which people's anxiety was manifesting was they were championing interventions that if you really sat back and thought about it, you would say, that's not the biggest problem we are dealing with right now. And you can lay off those people a little bit. That is true. And I mean, the CDC guidelines, right, are um, masks when you can't appropriately socially isolate. Right. Um, and although I live in um, you know, a, a, a neighborhood which has accepted everybody and everybody everywhere is in is in cloth masks. You know, I think the reality is if I hope this doesn't, you know, offend slash depress people. I mean, I think if 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 we were going to succeed completely with covid, it would have been that when China admitted that they had you know, an epidemic in Wuhan, that the entire world shut down at that point, yeah, right? Yeah. And nobody would have accepted that. Um, yeah. It would not have happened. People, there would have been revolutions, right? Yeah, right. Um, and, and because of that inability to do that, you know, those cases clearly spread uh, quickly, Europe, Washington, New York, and then have spread since. And so unfortunately, you know, I, we're, we're stuck with this for a while now. Um, and we got to figure out a way to live with it. And and there's going to be, you know, a lot of illness, a lot of death that goes along with that. Um, but we have to make sure that, that, you know, we don't overreach and, and people have to start to become comfortable with, look, I got to accept a little bit more risk. We haven't had to accept risk from infectious disease, whatever, I don't know, 75 years, really. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be going out there, doing things, being intelligent. We're going to you know, probably have to wear masks wherever we're in close contact with people. We're going to have to be super careful about hygiene and everything. Um, but, you know, if if we're going to say that we have to lock down completely and anybody who doesn't do that is, is you know, some sort of evil being, um, I don't know what's going to happen over the next six months. Yeah, that's well put. You know, I think before we, we started recording, we were talking a little bit about diets and we were saying that, you know, how important it is to be sustainable in a diet. But I guess that's also yeah, true yeah. here. It's about sustainability. Yeah. And, and you know, it's sustainable, I think, to be mostly at home, to go to grocery store. But if you make me wear a bandana over my face in 90 degree right. uh, California heat and go for a run, that's not sustainable anymore when no one's around, you know? Right. And, and staying home is is not sustainable um, 
to the greater society, right? Yeah. I, I mean, we're we're relatively fortunate, right? Um, I can get away with that as life, um, but very quickly the thousands and thousands of people who work in restaurants in Chicago, you know, they're not going to last very long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even in medicine where it, you do have to lay hands on patients, um, it's amazing at how much I've been able to shift to digital and talking to people yeah. and doing virtual meetings um, and having them come get chemotherapy and talk to someone else. Um, but there are still those few things that you just can't shift it right. and you're going to be there right. face to face. Right. Right. And, and as everybody said, you know, a, a lot... Um, you know, there's going to be an, 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 an inordinate amount of harm from all this, and, and I will not understate the tragedy in any way. Um, but I'm really seeing, you know, some, some remarkable things that are going to change for the better as we go forward. I had this wonderful visit um, on Zoom, amazingly, with an 85-year-old patient of mine this week, and, and it became clear at the end of the visit that, boy, this was so much better for this person. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I'm going to do for this person at her stage in life with her illnesses, which is going to make a big difference. And she, at the end of it, said, can we just do visits like this in the future? Uh, and I realized I'm never going to see this person you know, face-to-face, except maybe if she ends up in the hospital. Yeah. And you know, we finished the call with me getting her daughter on the line and um, and starting home health for the person. This would have never happened before all this, but it's probably going to be better for her. Yeah. I had the same with, um, you know, people who I've treated with curative intent with lymphoma. We're a year out, two yeah. years out, three years out. I know, I mean, if they haven't called me in between visits to say they're having drenching night sweats and uh, mass right. and fevers, you know, they're probably fine. They're fine. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's a very nice, pleasant visit. And some people, you know, live 100 miles, 200 miles away, at least in, yeah. in Oregon is a huge state. And so it saves everyone yeah. a trip. I think that's going to change for the better. Yeah. But let's talk about what we were supposed to talk about. Okay. You know, when all this began, and I was uh, quarantined, I um, I uh, asked you for some book recommendations. And over the years, I've often asked you for book recommendations because I know you're an avid reader, um, and you don't believe in that tool of the devil, the television. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, and every time you give me book recommendations, uh, you know, I I'm I'm generally a fan. You know, you and I both liked um, what are some of the books we both liked a great deal? The Colin McCann series. Um, uh, yeah, Transatlantic yeah. and his prior one, uh, Let the Great World uh, Spin. Um, Great World Spin, yeah. Uh, we were both fans of um, that baseball book. Oh, um, yeah. Chad, Art of Fielding. Right? Art of Fielding, yeah. Art of Fielding. I love that yeah. book. Uh, the, and and it, that really sort of captured that Wisconsin Midwest kind of pa- summertime yes. baseball. Yeah, we love that book. Absolutely. And and there are a number of – and we both are big fans of uh, of Murakami. Um, yeah. And we have a lot of similar tastes in, in fiction over the years. So I, I called upon you for a recommendation. You gave me a, a good recommendation, Gentleman in Moscow uh, by Amor oh. Tolls, which I just finished a few weeks ago. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed, um, you know, just a really wonderful book. So I guess I want to know. And, and so I use reading books as the thing to do when I saw people going crazy on social media. And, um, you know, which is let's just disconnect and let me just catch up on some things I want to read. How do you yeah. use reading in your life, and and how do you how does how does that affect your sort of profession? Yeah, that's uh, uh, that's like one of those things I love to talk about, and I never get to talk about this. I'm happy to. Um, yeah, I, I feel like 
part of what we do, right, is to is to read a lot about medicine. Um, and I do my best to confine my medicine reading, you know, to the days I'm at work. Yeah. Um, and so my evening reading is kind of newspaper and then fiction for me. Um, and I love fiction because I don't like, you know, good fiction. I, I don't see it as an escape um, as much as I see it as like one order removed from reality. Mm. Right. So I love books um, that I can enjoy and enjoy the writing and enjoy the story. Um, but I also love books which which actually there are, you know, there are quotes, there are situations, there are sort of set pieces in them, which I'm like, wow, this really applies to my life. Um and and sometimes they're t- sort of totally far-fetched things that I'm like, I wasn't expecting anything from this. Um, and then I think maybe the two books that I've read recently, which I would which I would throw out there, one very popular, one not so. Um, I read Olive Again by Elizabeth Strout, right, mm-hmm. who's the person who wrote Olive Kittredge. Um, and, you know, that was a book about an aging woman and about her relationships and about her sort of narrowing circle of life. Um, and it gave me such insight into, you know, relationships with my family members and my relationships with my patients that I was never expecting. Um, and then I just finished a book called um, uh, Stoner um, by John Williams, which is this book that was on my list forever. It's this strange book. I think it's really a boy book. It's like this book about, you know, one guy and his whole life and his whole sort of internal monologue. There are two women characters in it who are so thinly portrayed. Um, they're like sort of just there to him, for him to respond to. Um, but it's great because there's so much sort of internal monologue and and him questioning his relationships with other people. Um, that's one of those things that I was like, this doesn't really get to my life exactly. This person's completely different from me. He's a, you know, farmer from um, Missouri. Um, but you still, you sort of put down the book and you're like, wow, how does this, how does this relate to me and how can I use this in my life? Hmm. That was, that's a great example. And then, uh, you know, it reminds me of, okay, cause we exchanged some quotes about it last year. Uh, there's a Tim O'Brien book. Uh, what was it that you read last year that, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. national book award winning book, I'm, uh, going after, um, right. uh, going after Kachata, right? Uh, yes, yes, yes. The, I, the Vietnam, the book. Vietnam book. Yeah. And, um, that might have been a book I suggested to you because I remember reading that many years ago. But um, it was totally and um, and I remember you know so many of the quotes that we were like you know I think we ended up like uh, tweeting out some quotes that we really enjoyed. Yeah, uh, and they're timeless quotes about you know yeah. medicine and about people and how they interact. So I guess you know that's the interesting thing about fiction, which is that as a doctor, you know it's such a unique position because. I don't know, compared to any other line of work where you meet so many people from so such different socioeconomic, ethnic um, sort of uh, backgrounds than your own. Um, you are just confronted with such a range, especially if you live in a metropolitan city like Chicago, you know, you're confronted with such yeah. a huge range of people from countries yeah. you've never been to and who grew up under conditions you can't imagine. And, and, right. and then you read a good work of fiction and and what it does, I think, is to distill the fact that, um, you know, there's just so much commonality in the human experience and stories. There's some sort of eternal truths. Um, and uh, you know, somebody somebody tweeted out some a great line that you know uh, I forget I can't I miss I'll butcher the exact quote, but it's something about how there's much more truth in fiction than there is in nonfiction. Um, and I think yeah. that kind of makes you more perceptive. I think when you go back in on the wards and on service and pick up on 
sort of what people are getting at, what people really mean, what people really feel? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really neat way to put it. And I've, you know, you, you hear that uh, that so many people say that that I read fiction because it exposes me to people and situations that I wouldn't actually get in my regular life. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the things that you know I know we both love about medicine is that I think medicine. Um, not only um, keeps you from getting big, too big-headed, right? Because it's impossible to master medicine. You're always making mistakes. You can't get too certain of yourself. Um, um, but the other thing is, you know, it's impossible. I don't know. Or it would take a whole lot of work um, to be at all dismissive of any type of person, whether it be, you know, occupation, level of wealth, gender, race, whatever, when you're a doctor, because, you know, when you're in the room with people, you recognize that everybody's the same and everybody's dealing with, you know, the same problems. Um, uh, But I think I've never made that connection that maybe it's one of the wonderful things because that's such a similar thread between good fiction and medicine is that you can sort of take from both um, those experiences. And, and it's probably what, you know, some of those people who are really big into this kind of health humanities um, yeah. talk about, about, you know, narrative medicine. Um, and I've, I've, I gotta say, I've never really bought the fact that, you know, writing about your experiences, um, help you to be a better doctor. I know some people feel really, really strongly yeah, right, about right, that. Yeah. I'm not sure I feel that, um, um, but I would certainly not you know, take that away from those who don't. Um, to me, I feel like in the you know, limited number of times that I have kind of written reflections about patient encounters, it's those things that I know you know so well that that you don't really understand something until you sit down and really hash mm-hmm. it out. And when you write a paragraph about something, you're like, huh, there's a whole lot here that I, that I don't understand yeah. um, until you try to work through it. And sometimes those things die on your hard drive because you can never figure it out. Yeah, that's well put. I would say, um, I, I agree with you. I, you know, I'm not, I've never been persuaded that you have to write about your encounters or that's helpful. I know there are ardent proponents of that. Um, I don't write about most things, but I do mull it over. You know, when you're reading the book at night and then you just think about somebody and you kind of close the book and you think about it for 15, 20 minutes, I'd say most of the time I think about things, it's the game of, you know, could anything have been done differently game? Uh, I I play that, oh, thousands of rounds. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think if they're, you know, that's the sort of, sort of medical thing. So I, 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 and I feel like if I ever were to write about a patient, you know, I know they're all these really talented people who write about patient stories and they they write it at a level that sort of the general public can access and find interesting but i know i know i'm going to write it at a level where it's only going to be interesting to somebody who has a lot of technical knowledge because i think that's like the interesting puzzle solving and then i'm going to try to bring the human side of it too which i'm probably since i'm not a great writer uh, not going to do a great job of that but you know I, i wanted to point this out about like when you read good fiction like why do you and i like the same book so much and i i think it's because we have we have similar kind of things we look for and I don't know, this is how I think about what I look for, and I wonder if you feel the same way. So I like, I like it when, um, you know, one, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a sucker like anyone else. I like a good plot. So, you know, I like it when the, when the author has constructed something where I'm very interested in what happens to characters. But I also really like writers who are just so good at, 
every every few pages you read and and they have polished some observation of their own that's something they've made about how wives yeah. are to husbands children sons are to fathers some observation they've made over the course of a long life and and they polished it into a into a little sort of thing that they put into their story um and i love looking for those and 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 those are the ones where i'm like oh yes they just nailed it and i write that down when i look at right. the the right. language right. i like i like people who write um you know, in this way where, you know, certainly there's some people who I think are trying to be ostentatious or flowery or Victorian. And I find that a turnoff. Like, I think they're trying too hard. But there's some people who write, you know, beautifully. And you can just tell that they spend a lot of time thinking about how they want to say this. And they've said it just perfectly. And then I guess I'm also drawn to, and I heard Jeff Eugenides talk about this in a podcast recently, where he said, the hardest thing to do is to write realistically. And he said that, you know, you think yeah. you write realistically, but so often you're doing things in the book that are a stretch, a leap. And if you really wanted to write realistically, like just how things would happen, I think that's what he's tried to do with Marriage Plot, which is why we both like that so much. Um, it's really difficult. Um, okay, anyway, so... So I think those are the things that I like, which is, you know, great language, but doesn't have to be overly flowery, um, you know, great observations about humanity and a great story and trying to be realistic. Is that what you look for? What do you look for? Yeah, I, I, I think I would I would agree with those and probably balance them a little bit differently. Um, uh, the story is important to me. I'm someone who sort of needs something to keep going. Yeah. I really find the writing critical to me. Um you know, stodgy, flowery, or cliche-ridden language just kills me, and kills I can't me. get through it, and I just have to stop. Um, and so the people like Michael Ndanche, who's another one who I think we, we yeah, really agree with, yeah. is one of the people I can just, you know, I'll read paragraphs over and over again just to say like, ah, you know, <laughs> who uses language like that? That's yeah. great. Um, He's the good kind of lyrical, I, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then... Um, and then the idea that, you know, these are people who've somehow been able to recognize these truths. And I imagine what they do is they write it down in a journal, they work it for, you know, weeks, months, years, get it perfect, and then figure out a way to get it in their novel. So when we read it, we're like, ah, oh, yes, that's how I feel. And that's how I always wish I could have expressed it. Yeah. Um, and just like you, you know, I circle those when I finish the book, I have a journal, I write those through yeah. and every now and then I just sit around and I read those and it's like, Oh, this is, this is like the best book ever. Mm. Um, I'm funny. I'm, I may be a little bit less, uh, and maybe we're just kind of defining it differently. I may be a little less attached to, you know, uh, reality, realism. Yeah. Um, like I want to be able to identify with the people, but I don't care if it's a little bit out there, right? Um, um, I'm like a Gabriel Garcia Marquez fan. Some of the more commie stuff that you're like, what the hell is this guy talking about? But, you know, you're still getting <laughs> yeah. stuff out of it. So I'm willing to sacrifice a little of that. Um, though certainly there are those authors who can write um, um write things that are just real life so well. Um, I'm looking up another book that I recently read, um, America for Beginners by, I'm going to mispronounce her name, uh, Leah Frankie, who wrote this wonderful book about a, a woman um, from, uh, uh, from Kolkata, Kolkata, um, who's 
husband had just died and son had just died and did this trip across America. Um, and that was one of those books that, boy, was just so real that, you know, you could taste the bad Indian food they were eating as they <laughs> made their way across yeah. the United States. Yeah. Um, um, and so I guess I love it when I see it, but I don't need it, I guess. Um, oh, that's interesting. Um, so, I mean, I guess... In terms of Mar Garcia Marquez, who I love, I'm I'm more of the um, love in the time of cholera than 100 Years of Solitude yeah. kind of. You know, I like I like it more realistic. And sometimes when I read a lot of modern authors, um, wait, let me ask you. Yeah, when did you first read Love in the Time of Cholera? Oh, um, how old were you? Maybe 21, 22, college. Yeah. Did you like it then? Yeah, I liked it then. I think. Um, why do you do you have different experience? Well, you liked him more as you read got older. Hundred Years of Solitude, you know about that. Yeah, yeah. I read Hundred Years of Solitude, you know, at I don't know eighteen twenty. Loved it. Uh, everybody was like, "Oh, you got to read Love and Love Cholera." Read that, I was like, "Ugh, I hate this." <laughs> and then I went back to you know when I was forty. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh my God, this is a masterpiece." Yeah. Um, and I think not only because of the age, the long-term relationship, um, but also then I was at a time that I appreciated the, you know, the medicine side of it as uh, yes, well. Um, yes, yes. You know, there's, there's a great physician there with reflections and, and uh. yeah, I guess I would say that um, the medicine side of it was always it, over the years. I just learned how true that is. That um, yeah. how much of sort of our emotional states influence how we feel about ourselves and the kinds of things we, you know. Um, are concerned with or complain about. Um, and maybe the time it re maybe it resonated so much with me because of sort of early heartbreak and then reading about sort of this, <laughs> the ultimate example of somebody who um, has, is sort of patiently waiting for love sort of thing. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a great book. And I actually think his best book is the first of his autobiography, uh, Vivir para contarla, or Living to Tell the Tale. And he was supposed to write a three-part autobiography. He never wrote the second or third part. So it's just the first part, which is from his birth until he uh, meets his wife, who he eventually marries. Um, but in that autobiography, you see sort of all of the elements uh, that appear in sort of many of his stories for years to come and sort of when he experienced in his life. So yeah. I thought it was sort of really nice. But, you know, I, I think, I don't know, I guess I read a lot of these modern writers and I think... You know, and sometimes when I, you know, for me, if I really want to find, if I really read something and I have a feeling like, eh, I didn't like it that much, and I, but I'm not really good at articulating that feeling, I go to Amazon and I find the critical review that people really like, and I read that critical review, <laughs> and almost always they they nail it, they just nailed it. They were like, yeah. you know, yeah. they're like, oh, this plot twist occurred, but you know, it's actually it would have never occurred this way for the following six reasons, you know, or um, uh, right. the the author he he always writes uh adjectives in this way three adjectives he was a you know this 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 he always writes it the same way it becomes cliched and trite you know they so they often put their nail right they often hit the nail right on the head yeah that's it you, you put more effort into the books you don't like than i do um, <laughs> yeah, um, I, do. I, I i'm gonna say when something's like a two-star book for me i'll never finish it and the three-star ones i'm like okay whatever i understand why people like that book i'm never going back to this and i'm never even thinking about it again and sometimes those things sort of go up in your opinion as time goes on yeah. right and you find them well, you know i didn't think i liked that but there are parts of it which really stuck in my mind i got to reappraise that someday um, do you uh, finish every book you start? I do not. Mm. Life's too short for reading bad books, right? Yeah, um, I have a pile of things that I've just taught. And those are the ones that 
that I have to say don't end up on my bookshelf. I bring those right back to pals and 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 give them back for you know a dollar's credit for something else. <laughs> I see. I see. I better not find malignant in that pile. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, now let's talk about writing. I mean, I guess you know you've written a couple of books. You're not written fiction. We wrote obviously yeah. ending medical reversal. We've been working on some, some people consider that. Some people consider some people that fiction. Universal <laughs> fiction. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I hear them talk about it sometimes. Um, uh, which, by the way, reminds me of, you know, you talk about like Twitter, you know, uh, I think what I've learned about it um, is the same thing I learned about the book, which is that you just, there's not enough time in life to indulge all the people who dislike it. And you just can't like waste all your time arguing with them. You just kind of have to move on. Um, but, so true. but back to the question. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what's your process like when you write? And, um, yeah, is, and is it different based on the kinds of things that die on your hard drive versus the kinds of things people are actually reading? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I guess it's one of those CV of failures thing, right? Um, I, I think I'm about one-third published, two-thirds die at this point. Oh, wow. Um, and, and I think what happens is that you... Or for, I'll just speak for myself, is that, you know, you go through life and you get all these great ideas, right? And Or you think they're great ideas. Yeah. Um, and then some of them, as you sort of translate them to paper and explore them more, yeah. some of them you realize that it's like a single sentence thought. And you're <laughs> like, that's kind of nice, but that's maybe better as a tweet than an article. Mm-hmm. Um and then there are ones that actually, as you start writing, you realize that, wow, there's actually a lot of complexity to this um, and, you know, a number of paragraphs that you can sort of unwind. Um, it's almost like we've always talked that, you know, so many um, nonfiction books would have been better as a New Yorker article than a whole book. Right. Um, and I think there are a lot of essays that would have been better as a tweet rather than an essay. Right. Um, and so the things that fail for me are the things which turn out to have just not been that rich and complex or things that to be perfectly honest i feel like wow you know my my writing skills my thinking skills are just sort of not up to dissecting it enough um and i have a few things which i get a paragraph into and i'm like wow not yet or not now maybe maybe someday uh, hope to get back to that yeah i feel the same way for some types of writing which is like um if I've had some experience in my life and, you know, I can call you on the phone and I can tell you, you know, what led up to it, what happened. And, you know, and maybe if uh, we're at dinner together and you give me a drink or two, I can tell it in a really good way, fun way. But you <laughs> ask me to sit down and write it down. Um, and I think yeah, it'll be yeah. like this wonderful. Th- it's so hard. And it really just makes you appreciate how people who do a good job of it are really masters of time, of language, of interest, of, you know, it's different than writing nonfiction, which is something that, you know, we're so comfortable with. But trying to write a story or try to write that kind of, like, narrative, um, you can play around with so many things from timing to dialogue to to character development to, you know, where do you want to put description. Um, It's difficult, especially if you don't practice it all the time, which we don't because we're busy doing other jobs. Um, And that's the stuff for me that 100% death death rate. For writing nonfiction... I guess my, um, and all the things that we work on, I guess I have, I don't know, I came to a realization early on about sort of classwork. Um, I realized that I'm much better student when I go to class and I don't take notes. I, I don't even try to take notes. I don't attempt to take notes. I sit there, I listen, I give them my attention, you know, I'm not distracted. Um, and whatever goes in, goes in and whatever doesn't, you know, I'll try to read about it later. Um, when I try to yeah. take notes, I find myself, I get more sort of 
distracted by taking the notes than listening to the person talk. Um, and similarly for, for writing, I found that, you know, I could have flashcards and get it all organized and try to construct what I want to say. Um, but the better thing is to just read all the things you want to include and kind of get that in the front of your mind and then just, you know, just try to write it and get something out. Then maybe sit on it for a couple days and then try to edit it a day later. Um, and so, so that's the, that's the, how it's changed for me, the process of actually like sitting down to do it is just try to let it come more organically rather than try to script it. Yeah, I, I work in exactly the same way. Um, you know, everything I've ever written has been, uh, you know, writing something fast and turns out fairly crappy. Um, and then I, I work through it, you know, expanding it, polishing it. Um, and I could never actually make money as an author because it takes me so long to get through those things. Um, the thing that's most popular for me as far as like, you know, quote unquote health humanities is that um, advice to a student beginning medical school. Um, and that, you know, I wrote that as a white coat ceremony speech that that never got taken up. Um, and I went back to it 18 months later to prepare it as an article. And I think the reason why, you know, I'm pretty proud of that. And a lot of people have really liked it. I think it's because I worked on it that long. Yeah. Um, I have to say, it's one of the things that I've, I think, most enjoyed about our collaborations, because I kind of feel like, you know, in just about everything, you know, you do that, that really good, really creative sort of off the cuff, you know, here it is. Um, and then that saves me the, that really difficult job. And I can sort of then go into it and say, huh, these are amazing thoughts, you know, let me try to expand those and polish those a little bit, yeah. um, you know, before it goes back to you for even more work. Um, and it's been a, it's been a great collaboration because it feels like two parts of the same brain almost working on a piece. Yeah, I guess I would say, Oh, I totally Not feel that like... I really want a part of your brain. <laughs> no, you don't. You don't want to enter there. Um, but I guess what you said made me think of two things. One, you know, Stephen King, when I read his memoir on writing, he talks about yeah, how yeah, everything yeah. he drafts, he puts it in a drawer for six months and comes back and picks yeah. it up. And then, you know, he can yeah. instantly sort of edit it. And then the other thing is, um, you know, thinking about us working together, it's always so enjoyable for me, too. And I guess, you know, you and I are working, you know, we're pecking out some ideas for the future. Um, and so we're exchanging some stuff, uh, you know, that the listener, you know, maybe someday the listener is going to see this. But I guess um, we both said something similar. And maybe, I mean, at least you said something to me and it really kind of is, goes with how I felt, which was that, um, boy, uh, isn't it nice to have a project like that? Um, what do we, what do I mean by that? Like, um, it's so nice to have a project where the horizon is... Whatever we're pecking on, whatever we're we're working on, it's not going to be out this year. Maybe not next year. Maybe not the year. It's going to be a few years down the road, and um, it's based on not just you know five minutes of thinking, but you know you and I have we exchange a lot of emails and messages, and we read a lot of the same stuff, and we call each other with jokes, and you know we have a lot of the same thoughts about you know the sort of the public dissemination of medical science and healthcare, and, and that's what we're sort of pecking on. So we've had these thoughts for years, and, yeah. and and actually trying to take these thoughts that are kind of diffuse, amorphous, and try to put it onto paper, and then, you know, to have you go in there and polish it up and, and add all this stuff that, you know, I was sort of, you know, I didn't even think about thinking about or, you know, that kind of stuff. I mean... I guess I want to say that, you know, it's it's really pleasurable. And, you know, it's it's just something, I don't know, people build 
boats and bottles. People do crossword puzzles. I mean, it feels like <laughs> it's like that, except it's trying to get something off your chest as well. Um, I don't know. How do you think about, you know, totally. you, f- you enjoy these kind of long range projects? And I, right. I, so one, I, I think it's part of the creative process, right? The, the whole idea that you're bringing something out of nowhere is amazing. Um, and it may be a book or it may be a ship in the bottle though. I think I would kill myself <laughs> before I could finish a ship in a bottle. Right. Um, uh, you know, is, is, is just, you know, it's wonderful, um, and feels so good as you do it. Um, I also love the ability, um, like the things that we've done and we're working on where you have this time to, uh, really construct a broad argument, right? And it starts with sort of a bunch of amorphic thoughts as you start working those out, you kind of realize, okay, you know, this really makes sense. This really makes sense. This really makes sense. And then the last thing is, okay, how do we thread all those together to make a point over, you know, over, over a long piece of work, right. um, uh, which is so great. Cause I, I, I mean, I don't think that's done well a lot of times. Yeah. Um, I think we did it well with ending medical reversal. Yeah. I really hope we do it well with the next with the next work. Yeah. Um, and I agree. It's, it's, it's a joy. And at, at very least, you know, you and I come out of it feeling like we understand something better. Yeah. At least at very least it's, you know, and at the very least you and I come out of it having read it. So at least there's two readers. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you know, I guess what I, I, I guess I'd say, I agree with you a lot, which is, you know, what, what we're trying to do in nonfiction, I guess, which is what we're writing, especially and it's nonfiction from like, I don't know, from the perspective of people who practice a certain trade. And it's a trade that goes back a long time. And if I think about what ending medical reversal really is, it's, you know, two people who practice a trade trying to articulate, I think, a set of principles for how we can make this trade better. And in the end of the book, actually talk about some of the ways in which, you know, there should be some room for, I think you had this sentence that you put in, which was, um, uh, fundamentalism in all its forms is bad, um, which is that, you know, we have to be a little bit flexible too. And so we talk about that. And I think what I like about that book is I think, um, you know, it's building a big, long arc. And I think there's nothing superfluous in there. We're not repeating ourselves when it's not being redundant. Uh, you know, we're trying to make some points and, and, we're, and, and once we make the points, we're done. That's it. We walk away from the table. Uh, right. When I read right. a lot of nonfiction, the number one error I see is it's the one point it's the it's the it's the book that could be an Atlantic article. It's the Atlantic article that could be a tweet. Um, it's the one point that's being made over and over again. And I got it. I see where you're coming from, and you're not really adding anything. You're just kind of rehashing the same thing. And there there are uh, you know there are some books that <laughs> have sold orders of magnitude yeah, more copies than yeah. ending medical reversal, which I feel are like that. Right, um, the one which people will probably maybe unsubscribe to plenary session, <laughs> but it's your podcast, not mine, Fine. Yeah, do it. is, you know, thinking fast. Oh, I was going to say that. I was going to say that. Yeah. Uh, thinking fast and slow, the Kahneman book. Um, Cause you know, I read that. Yeah. And it's, it's brilliant. Okay. And those guys, I mean, the research they did and the work they did, it's incredible, but at baseline, it's a pretty simple idea. Yeah. And their brilliance was coming up with it and actually proving it. Um, but really, you know, I kind of got it in the first hundred pages and I didn't need the next, I don't know, felt like 1400 pages (laughs) to hammer it home. Um, I I loved your, um, you know, your, your comment about that, that fundamentalism quote 
and maybe to bring it back to COVID, um, I've been working with the students in the residence uh, a lot these days about reading all of this, these COVID articles that are coming out and thinking about, um, you know, how can we use this research? Can we use this research? Is this research that even needs to be done? Are we basically wasting time and, and cases and drugs and convalescent plasma um, on, you know, yet another um, yeah. case series, whatever. Um, and I've been, I've been passing out uh, the, um, the Beyond Dogma chapter of Ending Medical oh, Reversal, yeah. Yeah. which kind of gets to the point of like, so when is it okay not to have randomized control trials? Um, and I knew, I know when we wrote that, you know, you really articulated it, um, the times that, you know, listen, listen you know, we're doctors, we know what it's like to take care of patients. We know what it's like to have no idea what to do yeah. and just throw things at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. And that's absolutely appropriate in, in you know, multiple circumstances. Yeah. Um, often when it's like, you know, I think as you put it as, you know, dire situations and rare situations. But, you know, this unfortunately is not a rare situation. And, you know, we have to learn from this. Um, and having another six patients who got remdesivir tells us absolutely nothing. Right. Um, and I, I was so bent out of shape reading the, I think it was the JAMA article on convalescent plasma, oh, yeah. because that article referenced 12 other case series that have been done in the last 20 years on SARS, MERS, and Ebola. And I was like, you know, if just once somebody had said, we need to do a randomized controlled trial here, we'd be going into this epidemic knowing does this work? Right. You know, should we be using this? Are we harming people? Um, and, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, um, or I guess both, you know, this is big enough that we're going to leave this this pandemic with a bunch more worthless case series on convalescent plasmas. Yeah, yeah. But we are, are also going to leave with some hopefully robust RCTs. And so when the next thing comes, we'll know if this is worth using or not. That's well put. Yeah, it's a kind of uh, it, it, when you see like add up all the uncontrolled experience and you get in the few hundreds or the thousands, you start to wonder, what yeah. the hell have you done? Why are you doing more right. uncontrolled experience? Just get the answer. Um, right. But I guess um, so true. I guess two two more things about nonfiction that really bug me. Let's see what you think. One, um, you know, we're so trained in a certain way of thinking, scientific thinking justifying what we say. You know, we talk about an ethical medical reversal. You might not agree with everything we say, but we've gone to great pains to give you a reference for everything. And in Malignant, I try to do the same thing. Um, so when you read a yeah, book yeah. and it's a, a nonfiction book about whatever, um, and the authors start making recommendations like, oh, you know, just assert yourself in this situation or the right way to handle this is to do whatever. I just want to scream at them and say, what proof do you have? My God, you have nothing. You're not hanging your head on anything. I can't read this garbage. And I read so many, so many best selling like magnum nonfiction books that make specific recommendations on how you should structure your productivity or life or career or success. And they have garbage garbage data that support anything they're saying. And it just grates on me. And I'm like, oh, I, I'm damaged. I, I can't read these books anymore. Um, <laughs> you, you could also read the, read the guidelines from the American Association of Pediatrics. <laughs> I do. I do feel the same way. Uh, their screen time guide. No, I, re I feel the same way on many of their guidelines. Yeah, because the data is, it's really just what they believe. Um, Let me actually just cut in for a second. And, and I actually, I think that's fine, you know, because we all have opinions. And 
um, if you label those as opinions and tell why it's your opinion, even if it's not based on good data, that's fine. Um, it just has to be labeled expert opinion, yeah. right? Or maybe sub-expert opinion. Um, you know, I have very strong opinions about what my patients should be eating, you know, and what sort of nutritional interventions they should do. Is it based on anything? I feel like it's based on common sense and not fad. Um, but I admit, it's impossible to get good data on this. And just everybody who's pushing for, you know, an Atkins diet or intermittent fasting or, you know, just never eating again should just admit, like, well, you know, I'm kind of making this up. Just <laughs> right, like, just right. Just like Dr. Seafew. Right. Um, and I think... Um... You know, when it comes to the best-selling nonfiction books, they all have something in common, which is that um, people in the business world are trying to apply this insight to their careers. And I think that's true even for Thinking Fast and Slow. It's true for many of the Gladwell books. It's true for, you know, books by Adam Grant, all these books where they have all this advice. And, and, and that is, you know, fine, but they should just label it. Um, oh, by the way, if you did all the things we suggest, I have no idea if your career is going to be more or less successful. So I have to give you that. Right, right. 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 And, and, and as we know from, you know, looking at hundreds, thousands of randomized control trials and, and meditating on the number needed to treat, whether you think the number needed to treat is a worthwhile or worthless, um, yeah, um, you know, met metric, um, you know, any of these books are, are not going to help the majority of, of people. And right. you should read it. And you can say, look, does this apply to my life? Yeah, okay. Maybe I'll take some of that, but that's it. All right. And my last thought for you is the denominator question. You know, people often yeah. tell me, um, you know, why is great fiction so great? And I think so much of it is, is like, why is the best soccer player uh, a better athlete than the best water polo player? Uh, the denominator. Um, how many people can write fiction books a year? I mean, must be 100,000 plus, maybe 200,000. Right. Right. Um, and, and the cream of the crop is often, you know, really the cream. Um, you know, as as proud as we are of of, of books, symptom diagnosis, malignant, and ending medical reversal, um, you know, how many people write medical books a year? I don't know, maybe a thousand people, ten thousand people, and uh, you know, the yeah, denominator yeah. is not it's not the same scale. And so, um, you know, um, I think the reason why great fiction is so stand out is that you're really reading what is like some of the best, you know, works with so many people trying in this arena. And it's why right. the best soccer player right. is, you know, really talented. Right. Right. I mean, we know what you have to go through to get, you know, our little nonfiction books published, right? right? Um, it is far harder, uh, far harder, you know, race to get through to get a fiction book published. And the denominator is huge. So the ones that rise to the top are really special. Um, and, you know, I'm in a, like everybody else on the planet, you know, I, I'm in a book club and I'm, I'm sometimes annoyed when the people pick the book to read that like every other book club in America is reading. Yeah. But, you know, those awful turn out, those often turn out to be <laughs> right. amazing yeah. um, because they've not only been published, they've not only been popular, but they've been popular among the people who have enough time and energy and focus to actually have book clubs. Those turn out to be pretty special books often. Yeah. Um, I feel like I have to be like hoity-toity and pick these obscure Japanese novels to read, which often turn out to be complete flops. And, and the people in my book club pick the trendy ones are like, yeah, that's a great book. I can't argue with that. Yeah, I feel the same way. Yeah. All right. So I think this has been good. I mean, we, we, were, we had a broad task, which was somehow to talk about uh, COVID, but not too much. 
literature and writing. And uh, I, I think we, we've, we've hit all the topics. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it'll be up to the listeners to judge us. Right. This seems like a, um, a, a little bit apart from the usual plenary session topics. Um, you may be getting soft and getting away from medicine here. <laughs> well, I think I, I'll, I'm going to put it out. With, but the monologue before will be some rant about some lousy NEJM studies. So I'll balance it out. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, Adam, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you back. I think this must be your Thank you third for having fourth, me. I, um, I hope to keep coming back. I yeah. want to at least like be in be in front of the crowd with how many times I've been on plenary session by the time we're all yeah. we all die of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you uh, the most frequent guest in the, in the era of COVID. So thanks. Thanks so much. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.